Welcome to 2 Timothy 2 and then Genesis 39. As you're flipping that direction, we're going to talk about something today called adulting. All right, okay? Heard the term adulting before, all right? Um, have you ever had to make an adult decision before? You ever had to make an adult decision? Now, just for the record, this sermon, if you are in your 20s and 30s today, this is going to sound eerily familiar for a lot of you today, okay? This is a great one. And then if you are in your 40s and 50s, it's going to sound somewhat familiar, but man, it's going to give you a rush of memories today. Uh, and then if you're in 60s and 70s, you can be teaching this stuff, all right? It's going to be great. It's going to be a great experience we go through. Have you ever had to make an adult decision before? Denver had to make one this past week that was pretty rough, okay? Denver, who is our staff young adult, all right? You know what I mean? He just, again, we just we all kind of vicariously lived through Denver. He's our worship leader, vicariously lived through him. He had a buddy that uh, had done some guitar work for one of the bands playing at Saturday Night Live, and he got a call from his buddy, and he said, dude, come out here. They're going to let us and a group of friends walk around on stage and hang out on the SNL set. And so, again, just the, it just was crazy. So Denver's like, man, that's awesome. And he was like, oh, Saturday night after the show? He goes, I got to get back to, to work at the church in the morning. And it was so interesting because he was like, he thought the way that many of us think. Now, if I get on the train at this point and I ride all the way back, then maybe, just maybe, I can get back in time. And Denver came in and he goes, all right, man, I made the adult decision. I'm not going to go. And I was like, man, I didn't give you off or something. We can figure something out. And he goes, no, this is the adult decision. I'm doing the right thing. Now listen, that is adulting people, right? Okay, making the right decision, sticking with your decision, doing the right thing. For some of you, you've had that experience before. You want to go out with friends late, but you know you need a good night's rest so that you can go into work the next morning. For some of you, you've had this experience. You go to the restaurant, and they are known for their delicious fried food. They're known for the cheesy stuff, for the extra meaty stuff, and you look at it, and I'm telling you, you're salivating as you go through the menu, and then what do you say? I'll have the Caesar salad. You know what I mean? You had that moment before. It's the adult thing to do, right? You take the salad. You eat the, some of you are at the phase of life where you got to make sure there's a little bit of fiber in whatever it is that you're eating, right? I'm telling you, it's the adult decision. Some of you have gone to buy a car. And when you go to buy the car, you're at a phase of life where you go, the two-seater Miata just doesn't seem to work right now, right? And even though you want that, or the two-seater Corvette, for some of you upscale people in the room, all right? Man, you want that two-seater, but you got to have a little bit more space so that the car can actually be useful. You ever had to choose work over fun before? Oh, that's an adult decision, isn't it? Some of you, the reason I thought of you in this room, some of you are having to stay here and work instead of going home for Thanksgiving, instead of being with family. And I'm telling you, there's a point where you can choose family, and there's a point where if you want your job, you got to stay and do what they tell you to do. You military folks in this room know that double, don't you? There's a point where you got to choose adulting, right, over what you want to do. This idea of adulthood means that sometimes it gets complicated, but there is a right thing and there is a wrong thing. And you've got to choose what the right thing is and not be a child and choose the wrong thing. Just for the record, it doesn't just work with concrete examples. Sometimes it works this way with love. There's a beautiful verse that comes from 1 Corinthians 13 in the middle of Paul's discourse on what love is supposed to look like. He says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I talked like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Can I tell you what's so interesting about that verse? We love to take it and extract it from the, from the dissertation on love to have it stand alone by itself. Love is complicated, but at its root, love is you saying, if I love this person, if I care for this person, I'm going to be an adult and I'm going to strive to choose the right thing even when it doesn't necessarily feel right on the inside. 
Paul says, leave childish ways behind and embrace adulthood. It's difficult, but it can be something that's very, very influential in our lives. Now, just for the record, we're about to read through what I like to call Paul's uh, Guide to Adulting. Okay, look with me, if you will, at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. What does it mean to be a godly adult? We're going to get a little mini sermon right here from Paul. Here's what he says, 2 Timothy 2, 22. He says, first, flee the evil desires of youth. Second, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And number three, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Stop right there for just a minute. We get a three-point sermon on what adulthood is supposed to look like. Paul says, first and foremost, flee, husband pose style, away from evil. You got to make a decision. He doesn't just say evil. He says youthful lusts here or lusts of the flesh. The idea of youthful lusts is so interesting because Paul is writing to Timothy, who is between the ages of 30 and 40, most scholars believe at this point. So between the ages of 30 and 40, for Paul to say to Timothy, leave the desires of your youthful lusts, what he's saying to him is, leave behind this idea of childhood love, this idea of childhood relationship, and now you are called to something deeper. You're called to do the right thing even when it is difficult. He then says, don't just leave behind evil, fill the void by pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace, by pursuing things that are good. And then he says at the end, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It's not enough to flee from evil. It's not enough to pursue righteousness. We also need godly people alongside us to help us hang out and make decisions. Which says in scripture, when you walk with the wise, you yourself will be wise. It's a powerful thing in adulthood to realize the people you hang around with do matter. Now, if you're taking notes, I want to uh, share with you what I like to call the hover principle, okay? When it comes to adulting, the reputation you have is not just tied to the things you do, but it is also specifically tied to the things you hang around. Every now and again, we would talk to a high school student back when we worked in student ministry, and this would inevitably happen. They would get grounded from everything because of something they'd been involved in, except for church. They could come to church, and so we turned out as like their outlet for every problem they ever had, And so, which we don't mind doing that. We're, we're that for some of you here right now, right? You've been grounded to church by someone, uh, and you're here with us. The student would come up, and here's what they would say. The student would come, and they would say, my parents grounded me. I was at the party, but I wasn't even doing anything. And we'll go, well, what happened? And they'll tell us the story, and it usually always ended with, well, then the cops were called, and they just didn't, you know, they didn't listen to my story. I wasn't even doing anything, and they just have considered me a part of this problem. And I looked at them, and I go, hey, you want me to fix this problem for you real quick? I said, 2 Timothy 2, 22. Flee the evil desires of youth. You don't want to be associated with evil. Don't hang out with evil. If this podium is evil, all right? Here's what's so interesting. In so many parts of our lives, this young attitude, this non-adult attitude, this childlike attitude is, I'm not doing it. I'm just around it, right? I just want to be accessible to the people, right? I just want to make sure that I'm not looking down or judging anyone. And then all of a sudden, somebody goes, hey, were you doing such and such at the party? And they go, how dare you? How dare you associate me with that sin, right? How dare you associate me with that bad behavior? And they go, but you were there. And then you go, oh, but I would never do anything like that. Well, here's the deal. Adults have figured out, and if you hadn't figured this point out in this city by this point, you're in trouble, all right? Your reputation, you cannot do anything. And the people that you're associated with, 
The things that you hang around can absolutely destroy your reputation. Had you figured out Capitol Hill's a big, small town at this point? Okay, it's a less than twenty thousand people that are involved in that little area. I mean, I was in Carlsbad, New Mexico. Carlsbad, New Mexico is bigger than the than the, the makeup of Capitol Hill at this point. Now, listen, you got to come to a point where you understand what you do matters, but who you hang around and what you hang around matters as well. Paul says, "Flee." From evil, husband pose, sprint in the opposite direction because you want nothing to do with that evil, but it's not enough just to flee. He says then, with the void that's left, pursue righteousness. If you hover around evil, they'll associate you with evil whether you partake in it or not. The opposite is true as well. If you hang around good, even if you aren't doing good, guess what they associate you with? They associate you with good. Paul says, when the void shows up from you fleeing from evil, he says then, like Garfield to a car window, cling to righteousness. Be around it. And then before you know it, they'll begin to associate you with that righteousness. And then he says, along with those who call on the Lord out of pure heart, he says, then there's mentorship and discipleship. Flee from evil, cling to good, and then find some people who are just a bit ahead of you in their relationship with God and entrust yourself to them to say, teach me what you know. I want to be around you when I have these big decisions to make. If you're taking notes, a little quote here for you. Surround yourself with people pushing you to live like Jesus. Surround yourself with people pushing you to live like Jesus. If you walk with the wise, you yourself will be wise. If you walk with the fools, it's just a matter of time before one of those fool's ideas catches your attention and all of a sudden you make a big mistake. So now we're going to watch godly adulting in action in the life of Joseph. Flip over to Genesis chapter 39, and we're going to jump back into our study of the life of Joseph through this lens of adulting, because Joseph is about to do some really adult things uh, in this passage, okay? There was no pun intended there, okay? We're going to talk about Potiphar's wife, okay? Going over here, Genesis chapter 39, what we've got here is Joseph is about to make a series of really, really good decisions in an unwinnable situation. That may describe some of your lives today. Our big million dollar question, what are some godly, or what are some things that God Godly adult should know. What are some things that a godly adult should know? Now look with me, Genesis 39, and we're going to start in verse 1. As the lead up to this, remember, Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers. They're all jealous of him. He has a great vision for his life that the Lord's going to put him in a position of leadership and authority. He tells his brothers. His brothers get angry. We walk through the Judah and Tamar story. That was really basically just laying out all this time that had taken place for us. And uh, and then anyway, we've led into uh, Genesis 39 here. Look at 39 verse 1. It says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Now Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, look at this, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Stop right there for just a minute. So Joseph is about to end up in the house of the captain of the guard. This is something he never could have dreamed of, and definitely the brothers never would have dreamed up for him either. Joseph is sold into slavery to a group of Ishmaelites who then take Joseph to Egypt, and while they're in Egypt, they figure out after hanging out with him, he's not just a slave, he's a slave that we could really get a high price for. So they look at Joseph 
Joseph, and then they take him over and they shop him around. Well, the captain of the guard sees him and goes, how did this guy end up a slave? How much you want for him? And the Ishmaelites set the price, and they buy him, and then all of a sudden, he is in a very influential house of someone who has an influential position in the kingdom of Egypt at this point, which again was the biggest kingdom uh, the biggest kingdom uh, during this time period. If you're taking notes, our question again today, what are some things a godly adult should know? Number one, ultimately, God is responsible for your career path. Let me say that again. Ultimately, God is responsible for your career path. There is no way on his own that Joseph could have earned his way into Pharaoh's household, into the, uh, into the, uh, the service of someone who is in service of the Pharaoh at this point. Here's what you need to know. There are some of you in this room who have moved to D.C. from other locations, and you have incredibly hard work ethic. You have an incredibly high acumen for, for intelligence and understanding and high IQ, but you need to know this. There is always somebody smarter. There's always somebody more qualified. There's always somebody else that could have been in this position. But God has chosen you for such a time as this to be in this spot right here at this moment. There's a humility that has to stay with you where you realize, I work hard, but I am here because the Lord has allowed it to happen. Or the Lord has ordained it to happen. When you start thinking you earn this, pride cometh before fall, Scripture says. And then this city, you get puffed up. Your head gets big, and then all of a sudden, there are all these trolls in this city who've got needles, and they would love to just burst your head open. You know what I mean? They just love to burst your bubble, cause you to remember that anybody could do what you do. Now listen, anyone the Lord ordains can do what you do. It's a powerful thing to remember. God has set me up for such a time as this, but I am here because he wills it. He gave me this moment. He has provided for this. Some of you who've lived in this city a long time, man, you're not here because of your will. Man, it's a great attribute to who you are. You cannot stay in this city without will and determination. But you are here because God has ordained and allowed it. That is why. Ultimately, your career path belongs in the hands of Almighty God. If you don't take anything else from today, I want to give you a good little quote here. You ready? Near misses... And sudden surges in our career, path, our career journey indicate the presence of God's guiding hand. Let me say that again. Near misses and sudden surges in our career journey indicate the presence of God's guiding hand. There are some of you in this room who have interviewed for some really important jobs, and you finished second or third numerous times when you interview for those positions. Can I tell you, whenever I talk to you about that, there's always usually a frustration that comes up, just like it would in my life if I'd finished consistently second or third on something. Can I tell you what I see when I study this passage? That's God's guiding hand in your life. If he is consistently having you finish second or third for a position that you keep really pushing for, maybe just maybe that's the Lord's way of saying to you, no, not ever, or even no, not yet. He's being very intentional in your career path. Some of you had this happen before. You get offered a job that you know you're supposed to take that you did not in any way, shape, or form deserve. In that circumstance, when you truly feel at peace to jump forward in that position, the picture here is the same. You carry humility and knowing, I'll do the very best I can because God has gifted me this moment. It's not something I earned or something that I all along deserved, and finally someone has spotted that in me. Pride cometh before fall. 
Near misses and sudden surges in our career journey indicate the presence of God's guiding hand. There's a great little verse, by the way. Save your spot in Genesis, but open to Proverbs 16, verse 9. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, if you're looking for a verse to help you with workplace humility, here's what it says. Proverbs 16, 9. It says, in a man's heart, or in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Let me say that again. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Notice in this verse, planning a course, setting goals, striving for something, working on your education, working on your, uh, your, your, uh, your situation at work and career, working with your family. Planning your course is a very good thing, but ultimately the way your life plays out is in, accord- in accordance with what God's will for your life is, what he has ordained for your steps. We may the plans. We set the goals, but the Lord is the one who guides the ship. The Lord is the one who sets our steps and leads us to becoming who ultimately he wants us to be. When we feel like we're responsible for our career path, all it takes is one big mistake you fall into, and then all of a sudden you become inconsolable because it was all about you from the beginning. Some of you in this room, and I see some nods around the room, some of you in this room have experienced that. You worked and you earned and you worked and you earned, and then all of a sudden you got to a point where you couldn't work and earn anymore. And then all of a sudden it caused you to look in the mirror and you go, what have I been living my life for all this time? When you realize that the Lord was the one guiding your steps from the very beginning, there is a peace that comes over you and a weight that is lifted off of you. Because you realize he is in charge, he was in charge, and he will be in charge of the way that I get to live and what I get to do on this earth. Pastors have to go through this. It's kind of a requirement. Some of you have this experience in your your office as well. The hardest job to get in ministry is your very first one. Because every ministry job requires education and experience. And you sit there and you go, in my case, I was 21 years old. I graduated from college and I'm looking up going, I don't have any experience. I went to school. That's what I did through this stretch. And then they were like, well, you got to get experience before you can interview for some of these jobs. And I was like, how? How do I get that experience if I don't have anybody to offer me a job? I'd done internships. I'd worked, I'd worked uh, uh, just as a volunteer, but I'd never had anybody. That first ministry job requires somebody to really take a chance on you. So I waited tables for four and a half years at the finest restaurant in America, Red Lobster. All right, there you go. You get one more Red Lobster story, okay? So here's the deal. I loved working at Red Lobster, but there's a reason I worked for four and one half years at Red Lobster. The four years were while I was in school, And the one half year was right after graduation when I had no other job and I had student loans that I had to start paying. So I'll never forget. I've worked four years at Red Lobster, loved it, loved the experience, but that last six months was hard. That last six months was brutal. I think because my entire academic experience, I thought as I would go into work at Red Lobster, one day I won't have to do this because I'll have a degree and I will be worth more. I mean, I'm telling you, some of you have that same experience. I'll have that piece of paper. I'll have that, uh, that the certificate and I will be worth more than just doing this. And I'm telling you, I loved working at Red Lobster, but that last six months with a degree, I just felt like for some reason it was lesser. I had... I'd interviewed for a bunch of jobs and just didn't have the experience to get started in ministry. And I had a man who was mentoring me at that point. And he said, son, he goes, you need to memorize Colossians 3.23. He says in Colossians 3.23, the idea is that you work for the Lord and not for men, that you do this for God and not just for the paycheck. He said, your attitude needs to be that whatever you do, you do it with all your heart. 
And I'll never forget, when he said that to me, I thought to myself, you know what? I need to change my attitude. At work, I need to make sure I'm living for the Lord and not just living for myself. So I made the decision that if I was going to be a minister, that I needed to start witnessing to the people that I would spend time with. And so to the guys and the ladies in the back, to the other servers, and then when I went to the tables, what I would do is inevitably someone would ask me, well, young man, what are you wanting to do with your life? Okay, and at that point, I didn't just blatantly witness to the tables because I wanted their tip, you know what I mean? But instead what I would do is I would wait for them to ask that question and I would say, you know, I actually would like to be a minister. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And in just a snippet of about 60 seconds, I would share my faith with those people at the tables. It was crazy. We saw a revival break out. It was awesome in our little Red Lobster in Lubbock, Texas. It was pretty special. Rosalind and I worked together uh, back there at, uh, at uh, Red Lobster. You did a great job preaching last week, by the way. Kindness message was awesome. So Rosalind and I worked together at that Red Lobster in Lubbock. So here's what happened. We're working together. We're experiencing this little revival. And then one day, a table comes in. Mickey and Shirley McMeans from Post, Texas. Come and sit down. Couple in their 60s sit down at the table, and uh, I walk up to them, and sure enough, they say, well, young man, what do you want to do with your life? I say to Mickey and Shirley, you know, I would like to be a minister, and I start sharing my faith with them. Well, Shirley and Mickey look at each other, and all of a sudden, Shirley, Mickey's wife, goes, young man, you can stop right there. We're already saved. That's what she said. (laughs) We're already saved. I said, oh, that's wonderful. And she goes, so you want to be a minister, huh? She goes, you're pretty young. She said, well, what do you think, Mickey? Mickey looks and he goes, um, he goes, this is really interesting. He said, our youth minister quit two weeks ago. He goes, I just think this could be a holy moment. He said, could you get us your resume so that we can have a discussion? I mean, my eyes are huge. And he said, what was your name again, young man? And I go, uh, Zach Randall's. And all of a sudden, they look at each other and just start smiling. They go, you're John Randall's son? I said, yes. Now, here's what's crazy. Their son was a guy named Steve McMeans. My dad pastored four churches in his entire career. Steve followed my dad. Their son followed my dad as minister after dad left the churches. Twice, two of dad's four churches, their son had been the one. And we're meeting at Red Lobster right there in the middle of Lubbock, Texas. He goes, this is a real God-ordained moment. He said, our pastor named Jim Hancock, guy in his 70s, is going to be calling you. And when Jim calls you, he said, you really need to have a discussion with him. Well, at that point, I'm like, man, this is great. What an awesome opportunity. Jim calls me. He's a wonderful, kind man. And I could tell the spirit was with him. And I thought, man, I think I could work for this guy. The Lord seems to have set up this moment. And then I called my dad to tell him about everything that had happened. He goes, you don't know the half of it. He goes, Jim Hancock is the pastor of that church? I said, yeah. He goes, he's pastored two churches in his career, and now Post is the third. The first was First Baptist Odessa, Texas, and the other was First Baptist Canyon, Texas. He said, he's not just the pastor. He said, he's the director of missions for the entire region for the Southern Baptist group. He came back and he goes, you don't understand. He goes, that guy can get you a job just about anywhere in the region if he calls you in. He goes, surely the Lord is for you in this moment. From Red Lobster? (laughs) How? I wanted a job. I just wanted to serve in full-time ministry. And I'm telling you, if I had stayed and stomped my foot, I'd have missed it. I'd have missed it. Only the Lord knew that the catalyst to bringing all these people together would have been delicious coconut shrimp. Only the Lord could have known that. (laughs) 
Now listen to me. Your viewpoint of God becomes so small because you go, I gotta do it, I gotta do it, I gotta do it. I gotta get this internship. I gotta get this job. My path, my course that I've charted requires these positions. And the Lord's sitting there going, I can help you skip a whole lot of steps if you let me. I made you for such a time as this. This is a DC passage, isn't it? First and foremost, you gotta know God ultimately guides your steps. You plot your course, you plot your plan, and that is a very good thing to be a goal setter and a planner. But ultimately, the Lord directs the steps. Amen, Arvia? That's the way it works. Ultimately, the Lord directs directs your steps. Now, that's so easy when you're on the up and up, but it's the same when the Lord blocks you from something you feel like you deserve. It begs the question, can you see the Lord's hand in your journey? Can you see the Lord's hand in your journey? Or is all you see your failures and your triumphs? If that's you, you're going to live a very lonely existence. Let's keep moving. Look at what happens next. Genesis 39, verses 2 through 6. A lot of people remember the Potiphar's wife story, but we don't remember how he gets there. Look at what happens, verse 2. It says, The Lord was with Joseph. And he prospered, and he lived in the house with his Egyptian master. Look at this, verse 3. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From that time, he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, and the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in his house and in his field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, look at this. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Stop right there for just a minute. What I love about the way this passage ends, and it says kind of the same thing over and over again, to say, when Potiphar entrusted Joseph with things, the Lord began to bless. If you are in this room and you are working for someone who is not godly, who does not respect Almighty God. This set of verses is for you. Remember we talked about it. When you flee from evil, then they don't associate you with evil. But if you become a conduit for righteousness in your workplace, when people who are not godly hang around you, they are blessed. And not just them, but the organization as a whole. So here's what happens. In this circumstance, you've got Potiphar going, whoa, everything this kid touches turns to gold. Everything that happens around him, there is blessing that falls upon his life moment after moment, time after time. And he goes, man, the more I give him, the more I entrust to him, all of a sudden, this, this, there's blessing, there's benefit that takes place in every aspect. And he goes, man, all, all Potiphar had to do was eat. That's it. If you're taking notes, what are some things a godly adult should know? Number one, ultimately, God is responsible for your career path. And number two, integrity is an asset that even the godless respect. Let me say that again. Integrity is an asset that even the godless respect. Guys, you got to come to a point where you realize if you are walking with God and striving to do the right thing, it will be valued by your employers. It will be valued by your family members that don't walk with God. It will be valued by your roommates that don't walk with God because everybody wants to spend time with someone of integrity. Think about it. When you're thinking of a bank to put your money in, do you sit there and you go, all right, which one's the cheapest? All right, which one, uh, which one barely abides by uh, FCC regulations, right? Okay. No, guess what you do? You can entrust your money to somebody. You want it to be someone who is trustworthy. You want to entrust, some of you have investments. I don't know what that's like, but I've heard it's great, okay? <laughs> now listen, you got investments? 
you're just going to sit there and be like, all right, whoever on paper gives me the highest return, that's who I'm going with. Man, you want to know how they get there. Because all it takes is Uncle Sam to crack down, and then all of a sudden that money's gone, and you did nothing wrong except invest with the wrong people. When it comes to who you bank with, when it comes to who manages your portfolio, when it comes to who watches your children, godliness, godliness and integrity are things that are valued in the culture even by people who do not follow or believe in our God. If you're taking notes, a little quote here for you. If, you walk, or if your walk with God is only pushing people away, you might be doing it wrong. Let me say that again. If your walk with God is only pushing people away, you might be doing it wrong. There are going to be times when the will of God and the will of the culture come in stark contrast with one another. But integrity, integrity never goes out of style. There's some of you in this room who are navigating a sales job. I have the highest respect for you in this city if you're able to find a way to walk the line and to do it the right way. There's an old saying, you can shear a sheep many times, but skin him only once. Integrity is shearing the sheep rather than skinning them. You got to come to a point where you don't squeeze the relationship to get everything out of it that you possibly can. You realize that a relationship of integrity, they know that they're going to have to pay a fee to you. They know that services cost money for you to pay your bills and to be in the city and to do good. But if you come to the point where you even sell with integrity or you lobby with integrity, it's a slow burn. It starts small, but it can end up an amazing and godly career where people will look up to you and know, you're going to shoot with me straight. You're going to do it the right way. You're going to make sure that I'm taken care of. We know you benefit, but you're making sure that I benefit as well. You see this enacted in buddy cop shows back in the day. Remember buddy cop shows? I love watching buddy cop shows. The way every buddy cop show is built, it's always you've got you know, two rogue cops doing their thing, trying to take care of the people in the community. And then do you remember there's always some fine line, hard line commissioner that hauls them into the office and goes, look, I'm sick of your harebrained antics, but darn it if you're not the best cops on the force, right? <laughs> Can I tell you what the whole deal is built on? The whole deal is built on, they share in common the attitude that we would move forward together in unity, right? What's interesting, integrity, whether they share our faith or not, they will not respect your message on Jesus if they don't respect the integrity in your life. If you don't live with integrity, there is no way they're going to listen to anything you have to say. One of the best verses, I think, for workplace in Scripture is 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12. Save your spot in Genesis and flip over to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12. One of my friend Jordan's favorite verses, all right? 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12 say this. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands. Underline work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so you will not be dependent upon anybody. Stop right there. Paul is writing here about how the church is able to be in the community, but still maintaining the message of Jesus. He says, make it your ambition, not just to speak it, not just to be loud, but to live that quiet life, to mind your own business. I love work with your hands. Work with your hands is not for manual labor. Work with your hands meant that they can tangibly and visibly see you living for Jesus. They can see you being his hands and feet. And then he says, and when you do that, your daily life, your consistency, the things that you do that you really, really are will win the respect of outsiders. He says, then you will not be dependent on anybody. 
We got to come to a point where we realize integrity is an asset that even the godless respect. Integrity is something, whether you follow Jesus or not, you should be striving to live with it because it's deeply valued. And if you do follow Jesus, you need to realize that if you are not living with integrity, and every one of us falls short, but if you are not striving to live with integrity, you are cutting the legs out underneath your message. They're not going to listen to what you have to say because you're not one that strives to live it. Flip back over to Genesis 39 and we'll close out this story. I'm already out of time. I made y'all sit in the cold. I'm going to try not to make the next one. You ready? Genesis 39, last verses. We now are introduced to Potiphar's wife. Here we have Genesis 39, verses 6 through 10. Here's what it says next. It says, okay, again, uh, so he left Joseph's care, everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. But there's a little extra sentence here in verse 6. It says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Now stop right there for just a minute. Yes, that's in the Bible. This is one of the only places in Scripture that where that word well-built is used. And here's what's so interesting. It's used to describe Joseph. Also know this, Moses is the one writing Genesis. And so here's what's funny. Moses is like, look, I'm going to point this out. He was, not just, he was not just very determined. He was not just a hard worker. He was not just a dreamer that God had given great vision and passion to. He's not just a guy from a great family. What we find here is that Joseph has everything. He's also very strong, well-built, and he is incredibly handsome. Now, have you ever met somebody who was intelligent, who was, who was fun, who was witty, but they weren't very good-looking? You know what I mean? <laughs> that person is still accessible. You know what I mean? That's a person you can still root for because you go, you know what? They don't have everything. You know, I like that guy or I like that lady. Here's Joseph. He's got it all. Or have you ever met somebody who was really, really good looking before but didn't quite have those other things together? Again, you can be friends with those people, right? Here's Joseph. Joseph gets in trouble everywhere he goes because he's got it all. He's the total package, well built and handsome, all right? Now look at what happens next. Verse 7, it says, After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Stop right there for just a minute. That is about as forward as you get, right? Okay? She doesn't notice him, and then all of a sudden it's, hey, come to bed with me. Now look at verse 8. But he refused. Flee from evil. Ready? With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except for you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing? Look at this. And sin against God. You get the motivation of Joseph. We're going to talk about that next week. His motivation is to serve the Lord and not just to shun the wife. Look at what happens here in the next part. He says, again, I can't sin against God. And though she spoke to Joseph, or, and though she spoke to Joseph, look at this, day after day, underline day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Underline or even be with her. That is 2 uh, Timothy 2.22. He flees from evil. He sprints in the opposite direction. This temptation befalls him where he's got everything. But even Joseph knew, and this is a great word for this city, even Joseph knew he couldn't have it all. Do you hear me? Even Joseph knew he couldn't have it all. He had the good looks. He had the good physique. He had the intelligence. He's got the big job in the house. He's a slave, but he's not treated like a slave. I mean, everything is point. He's got the vision and direction for his life. But remember this in the passage. Even Joseph knew there are certain things that Yahweh God will not allow me to do. If you're taking notes, 
What are some things godly adults should know? Number one, ultimately, God is responsible for your career path. Number two, integrity is an asset that even the godless respect. And number three, it is very possible to say no to any temptation. It is very possible to say no to any temptation. It says she hits him day after day. There's some of you, that's your office. And what did he do? It says he would not even allow himself to be around her. He didn't just not sleep with her. He did his best to Heisman Pose get away because she was after him. Now here's what's interesting as you go through this part of the story. With this temptation, Joseph tries to reason with her, but she doesn't care. There's some of you in this room who've got people that come alongside you and their goal is to take you down. In many cases, it's not for any other reason other than misery loves company or that they just want you to feel as awful as they do and it'll make them feel better about themselves if they can say, see, nobody can resist this temptation. See, recovery is not possible. See, addiction just is and it will be until the day we die. Why should we even try? It's human nature. What you find out in this passage is Joseph, day after day, resists her, doesn't allow himself to even be with her because all she wants is to take him down. If you're taking notes, I got one last little thing for you. Three words. Are you ready? How do you fight temptation? Three words. Just start running. Write that down. Just start running. We're going to go in detail on that next week. Just start running. You got a Heisman pose in the opposite direction. I love it that Paul doesn't say, avoid the evil desires of youthful lusts. Be leery of the evil desires of youthful lusts. He uses an action verb, flee, sprint in the opposite direction because you don't want no part of that. You don't want no part of what the enemy is throwing at you. By the way, a great verse to memorize on that is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. For any of you young adults in this room trying to figure out a way how to fight temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is a heck of a verse to memorize. Here's what it says. It says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. The same Paul that says, flee, pursue, and gather around those who are striving to be righteous. He says, there is no temptation on this earth that you cannot stand up against. The world loves to tell you, we have no choice. We have no choice but to fall into this pattern of bad behavior. You always have a choice. Hear me say that. You always have a choice. And the same is true for righteousness. You always have a choice of whether or not you will do the right thing. Amen. you got to come to the point where you decide, out of reverence to God Almighty, just like Joseph, that you're going to do what the Lord has called you to do. Last question, and we're done today. Are you wasting thought on what is clearly a bad idea? Are you wasting thought on what is clearly a bad idea? Some of you are going to have a lot of time to think in the car or on a plane this week. I want to encourage you, really think about what you're thinking about. I know that sounds weird, but really think about what you are wasting valuable brain power on when you have that moment that you are trapped on the plane. What are you thinking about? Things that are godly? Or are you trying to rationalize a discussion with Potiphar's wife when you just need to stink and run screaming?